Welcome to BC's Corner, episode 16. The queer community, like any community, is not a monolith. A reality that has been explored in many studies is the experience of Black homophobia and white racism that stifles the development of many Black queer men and queer men of color. Existing as a minority within a minority, a sense of emasculation within some of the Black community, on the other hand, a degraded value from some of their white counterparts. These experiences contribute to the various studies that have shown that Black queer men struggle to find acceptance on multiple fronts, noting that part of this relates to the way that religion is embedded into the African-American community, the Black community, which in the past for some, present for others, has created a source of homonegativity. I truly desire to dive into this topic, and that is where my guest for today comes in, Paris Mullen, a Black queer man who is living HIV positive. Paris is a professional health advocate who has traveled the world working extensively in program management and community development, seeking better outcomes for individuals living with HIV and those impacted by trauma. He has collaborated with a variety of organizations such as the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institutes of Health, and various state health departments, clinical research sites, and community-based organizations. In this conversation, we talk through Paris's journey on becoming a fully realized queer man, how he has found community within the queer community, and how his diagnosis led him on a path to advocacy to then break down misconceptions regarding those living HIV positive and promoting HIV allyship. Taking a step back, I truly want to thank Paris at the top of the show for his vulnerability, for his willingness to share his journey with us, and really what an opportunity that we have to get to know him, to glean from his experiences and expertise, and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. So let's get started with Paris Muller. Paris, it really is a true joy to have you on BC's Corner to kick off season two of these necessary conversations with me. We've been in conversation for quite some time to get you on the show. And it really is amazing now, you know, almost three months later to have you now on as a guest. And so the conversation, you know, this process of having you on the show lasting almost the entire summer. And, you know, everyone who's listening, we have spoken prior to this. And I'm just eager to explore this topic through your unique world perspective. And so I just wanted to say it's an honor to have you here. Brian, thank you so much. It is equally an honor for me to be here with you and uh, humbling to share one story. You know, Maya Angelou said that everyone needs to know that their story has been told. And, you know, in whatever platform that looks like, in whatever media, in whatever way that manifests, I would say I agree that one story, however it is expressed, is able to be shared. So I don't take it lightly. And I'll say, Brian, I don't believe that this is all about me. You know, as we move forward, I'm always in the back of my mind, what's the greater purpose? And what's the greater reason that I can tap into, lean into about sharing, you know, a little bit more about me? I'll say this, but I feel like I know for sure at this point is that it's been wonderful meeting you. What a great spirit. What a great vision. 
what power you exude. And so I love to see you in all of your, your unique expression as well. So thank you. And, and there's such a kinship I have with you naturally because we have very similar backgrounds and oh. that we were both raised in the church. For me growing up, as you know, you know, we played church. When I was alone, I played church. I had my own pulpit set up with a microphone and a speaker. I was laying out the teddy bears. I was leading worship. I was mm-hmm. preaching. I was doing the altar call. We have few yeah. breaks. I did everything. Yes. Um, there are literally <laughs> pictures of me because I would watch Fred Hammond and Radical for Christ on VHS tapes. And oh. I would have my mic set up because I was a member of Radical for Christ and I was singing. Like I was singing too. So that's such a huge part of my background. The first platform that I stood on as a performer uh, was in church. The first speech I had to memorize was in church. So it wasn't just the singular religious experience and relationship with God, but that background for me launched me into so many of the things that I do so easily now. And it's Mm. because of that foundation. And so when I also think about our backgrounds, you know, coming from a minister's family, there are many, many Pastor Carters in my line. And for the longest time, if you would have asked me what I was going to be when I grew up, I used to tell people I am a pastor. And that was so much of my upbringing and Sunday school, Bible study, intercessory prayer. That was my lifestyle and my worldview for the majority of my life up until these recent years was primarily through the lens of church. I won't say through God because that came much later and much more recent in my life, but the lens of church occupied so much of how I viewed and walked through the world. Mm. Another similar thread to our experience is that not only have we both worked in ministry, grew up in ministry, but we've also witnessed kind of the worst of it. We've witnessed church splits. I wouldn't define mine necessarily as a church. It was more of a church exodus as the leadership never specifically transitioned. But really in the Black community, we don't really plant churches from scratch. We typically split off from a main church and you, you know, you leave, you say you want to be a pastor and you take a bunch of the folks with you. And that's what we would define mainly as a church split. But you were a youth pastor, you were engaged to a woman. And up until a certain point, only seeing your life seemingly like me through the Christian veneer, no matter your existing intersectionalities that weren't necessarily explored. And through this church split, you find yourself, I don't want to say displaced, but displaced from your normal environment and willing to explore Paris, to explore yourself. I suppose up until this moment, you were the ideal good son. How would you describe the lack of peace that led you to that moment of being willing to explore who you are? Thank you for the telling of your story. It gets me emotional listening. I didn't know all of that about you. So yeah, thanks for hijacking this time because emotionally, because I was expecting all that, but it draws me in. Thanks for creating a safer space. I feel a sense of belonging just because of what you've just said. So let me just clarify, you're saying so much, there's so many things that you're bringing out. Let me get right down to it. To clarify, here's some of the facts. When I left the church that I was at, I was a youth pastor. I was 27 years old. I was actually fired. I was fired. And, you know, the short story is the staff 
the leadership, some, perhaps one in particular pastor in particular, who was my, I was his direct report, you know, thought that my time was done there, that maybe God had something else for me. So that sounds nice and neat the way I just said it, but it, the situation was not, it was anything but. Ironically, you know, though, after they let me go, they asked me would I come to train the staff that they were bringing in. I was like, we can't cuss on this, can we? So I'll just say, you, I was you like, can say what you need to say. <laughs> fuck no. Okay. Fuck no. <laughs> the firing, there was a lot happening at that time at 27. I was fired from the church. I was also in ways ousted from this community that I was living within. I was enmeshed in, as I had done my seeming my entire life up until the age of 27, my blood, sweat, and tears went into ministry. It is what I loved. It is what I still love. It looks different now. I say all that to say is it was such a heart-wrenching and heart-rendering departure. There were relationships that were fractured. You know, there's a larger context to that this particular church that I was in. There was eventually a church split, if you will, with that particular church, but my departure didn't come behind that. It was behind me being let go. Mm. It was at that time that didn't make sense to me. It was baffling to me. It didn't seem logical. And so the confusion was exasperated by the actual being fired. I, at that point, said, fuck all this. (laughs) I'm going to finally do what I've always felt in my soul, my gut, which is to explore this thing called gay. Up until that point, I knew I was attracted to men. It was something I, through my teens and preteens and early adult and middle adulthood had said, middle 20s, uh, had said, you know, I prayed against it. I fasted against it. I read scriptures against it. I helped others who came to me in the church who were gay, who would say, this is not who I wanted to be. I helped counsel them to walk, you know, away from it, all these things. But I, when I was hurt at my core around, you know, from a place of the faith space and place in my heart, that which I dearly loved, which, you know, to some degree seemed as close to me as my skin was, I just like, this has been taken away from me. What do I have to hold on to anymore? The faith piece was so ruptured, if you will. So I, it sent me on my exploration. The day I was fired, I believe it was the same day I went to, I lived in Seattle, Washington. I went to a place called Capitol Hill, which is their neighborhood. I was so naive at this time, but I knew where to go to begin this exploration. And I went to a place called the Broadway Bar and Grill. And I asked the host, in all sincerity, where can one find sex around here? At 27, I didn't know where did people find sex, you know. And he wrote, this person wrote on a little napkin, a bar napkin, you know, some directions. And those directions happened to lead me to the bathhouse. And, you know, like Dorothy on the Yellow Brick Road, or we can say the Oz. Okay, ease on down, ease on down the road. <laughs> I eased on down the road, the yellow brick road to the bathhouse. And there I found, yes, as you'd guess, lions and tigers and bears, pigs and otters and everything else. I've <laughs> like, never heard of tigers, but okay. I know. <laughs> so that's how I begin my exploration into this thing called gay, exploring myself. And that, that's how it started. And yeah, but it started from a place of 
that pain gave me the courage and the desperation, the motivation to finally commit to this part of me. Because, yeah, I was like, what do I have to hold on to anymore? A very intimate moment that I had that was very private and, and connects to this next question is when I came out to my, my therapist. I was, you know, 23 at the time. And I was always talking in code. I was always talking in veneers about my life. And I just kind of had the day where I was like, enough is enough. I really want my peace. I really want to be honest. And I really don't want to lie. Uh And one thing that she had told me that has always stuck with me, she was like the thing, and she's a Christian minister woman. And and she's a therapist as well. She told me the thing that we miss about the gay experience and the queer experience is that we make it inherently sexual only. We make it only about lust and filling that particular need, which is a legitimate need that we as humans have. Mm-hmm. My question then for you is, as you evolved into this thing called gay that you were exploring, when did your queer experience become more than just physical attraction? When did you allow yourself to really say that I can love and be with another man? and not just have a, you know, a one night stand or just have a sexual relationship. Because for many, I know for me, it was a hurdle. Well, I'll tell you, it was through the bathhouse. It came through the sexual activity that I was involved in. And I met a guy who I started dating. You know, I will have to say the larger context is relationships help move me along my evolution of being I truly am as a gay man, relationships, and particularly positive relationships. I met a guy in the bathhouse, you know, we had sex in the bathhouse. And then at some point that we transitioned and he invited me to his place, you know, P.S. The bathhouse was my place of hiding. This was the place that I could not be fully in the gay community, meaning not out in the clubs, being seen so visible and also be hidden from the religious community that I had so many deep roots in. So it had me in that juxtaposition, that place. I could be on the inside looking out and those on the outside could not see me on the inside, you know, of these bathhouses. So it was created a safe space for me. But I met this person, we began hanging out on weekends at his place as opposed to the bathhouse. And I didn't know that this was called dating. I really hadn't dated <laughs> at, at all, you know, men or women. Hey, I had the fiance, but that was an oddity, uh, a great woman. And there was a love for her, but that was perhaps my first, maybe really significant relationship. And, um, you know, we had never had sex. We had just kissed. I had never seen her parts that are covered by the bathing suit. None of that be why, because I'm a Christian. Christians don't do that. And so it was with this person and uh, we started hanging out, going to dinners, just, you know, living life outside of the context of the bathhouse. And that's when the relational component kind of began to be prioritized, seeing him in real life. He's seeing me in real life, him learning about my parents are pastors and, you know, me learning all intimate parts of his life, you know, that were not centered around sex. The next iteration was I had my first, I would say, boyfriend. We were dating where he and I, this person I met at the bathhouse, I guess I can say names, John. I don't know if we were considered boyfriends. I That was a, too much of an ominous and heavy term for me, but I would say we certainly were dating. Um, but I'd say my first boyfriend at 30 years old, 
again, was a huge um, experience for me, transformative in my evolution of coming out. P.S. I was still wrestling with, though I had functionally left the church, functioning, I wasn't serving, participating, going 12 days a week. I know there are only seven, but it was like, you know, but that faith component was still huge. And I said, the questions, is gay okay? It was this relationship with this gentleman. I'm going to start saying names, Nathan. And that was, I'd say, the first time I experienced love, gay love, if you will. I missed him when I was with him. I missed him when I wasn't with him. We just had a rhythm. I could touch his skin and just be set on fire. We had a lot of similarities in our background. He came from a faith background as well. But he's who I first experienced that love with. Uh, Lastly, I'll see on that. One of the most loving things he said, you know, I was very candid about my tension around the faith and the gay piece. He says, Paris, in all sincerity, he says, Paris, if me being with you or us being together causes you to sin, he's like, then I don't want to help you sin. Mm. And that wasn't a big F you, but it was uh, just a huge proclamation of his support of me, regardless of what it meant or the impact that it would have on him for us not to be together. Now, that's how I tell the story. He might tell it differently, but he did say that and it offered so much support. So. That's the long answer of saying it was through relationships that helped guide me through my evolution coming out. It would also include gay friends that I began to meet along the way and going to parties and hanging out and, you know, all the summer fun. And then eventually being able to go to prides. I met a friend in college or was reconnected with a friend who we ironically were roommates in college had come to find out that, hey, he was coming out himself. He was gay himself. We didn't know this about each other in college. And so, you know, I had this friend now who I had all these first experiences with, you know, the list goes on. First prize, traveled around the country to, you know, gay events, uh, went out to the clubs, you know, together, all these stories about men together, you know, just wild and crazy nights. You know, it it was just, you know, together. and, And we both had faith backgrounds religious families. And so there are a lot of similarities. We knew each other from college. And so again, another example of my relationships and who I was and my truth, not being centered around sex, but through relationship. And then when did you find a a holistic peace? Because you're gaining a community, you're gaining love in ways that you haven't experienced before, but then you've also lost or transitioned in the type of relationship you have with your native community, with your family, with your faith community? How did you come to reconcile the loss or the shift with the inner peace that you were experiencing or maybe were trying to attain? As I'm thinking about that, I just want to say this. As we're having this conversation, one of the realizations I'm having is, you know, when I, and I will answer your question, I'm not trying to evade, is when I was at the bathhouses, I consistently got, you know, the compliments. Wow, look at your body. Uh, what smooth skin. Uh, were you a dancer? Uh, look at your legs. These kinds of things. These things, these comments that would baffle me. Who, me, what? At 27, I had never looked at myself sexually as attractive. I hadn't. I hadn't. 
I was a religious being. I was a youth pastor. I was, you know, that good son, that good kid, as you had mentioned. But as to own my sexuality and all of its superpower and its superpower and positivity was such a foreign notion, that told me that in this denial of me being gay, what also came along with that was a belief that on some level, many levels, I was unlovable. I feel like that that is one of the consequences, or at least it had been for me, of not being able to embrace who I was sooner, is along with that denial and suppression, there was a part of me that believed that I was unlovable if it had to be, you know, the conversation included being gay. So I'm unlearning that. The peace set in and began when I became more at peace with who I was inside. The being afraid of what others were going to think about me began to subside the more I confronted that fear of who's going to want me if I were gay. So the internal journey manifested internal peace, gave me an outlook of peace to my external world is how that happened. You know, there's a quote that I love. It says, uh, stop breaking yourself into bite-sized pieces, stay whole and let them choke. That's my journey. Not breaking myself into bite-sized pieces around turning myself into pretzel to be whomever I thought, mom, dad, religious community, et cetera, thought I should be, but actually my whole self. But what helped that though? I don't know a point in time, Brian, but what helped that for me to embrace who I was and to find peace is, again, I have to say, through relationships, through hanging out with people who are like me, finding a sense of belonging, not having to try to fit in, but I just belong because I belong as a gay man around other gay men. That gave me a sense of belonging and peace. And when I found that, you know, that was a big anchor for me. It helped me to reconcile the loss that I had felt from, you know, religious community. I want to say this though, on that piece, I did a lot of assuming when I functionally, I'll say left religious community in the church, assuming that all of them, big quotes, wouldn't embrace and accept me as a gay man. I didn't have the capacity to go back to some of them because of the hurt, because of my bias and assumptions about how all of they would think to go back and re-engage certain relationships. Now only to find out that, hey, Paris, we love you regardless. So my message would be, you know, maybe don't throw out the baby with the bathwater with regard to who you think won't accept you. You know, I needed to go on my own healing and do my own self-care. So I didn't have the wherewithal capacity to go back to various relationships and check in with them and see if, you know, I didn't have that. I needed to take care of myself, which I did through, you know, LGBTQ plus community. So I know it was a point in time. It was an evolution. And yeah, and I got to the place. It says, you know, those that Jesse J says, those that matter don't mind. And those that mind don't matter. Now, I do believe that people matter. But <laughs> they, if they, you know, if me being gay is such an issue for them, that doesn't matter to me. Um, but that place, it was a journey, an evolution. And then a pivotal moment in your life as you've been able to build relationships to discover an elevated version of yourself to experience life in a new way, to travel, to see the world. Pivotal moment in your life was your diagnosis of HIV, human immunodeficiency virus. 
we've never spoken in detail about this, but as much as you want to share, how did that change your life? I mean, it's still changing my life. Well, I mean, I'll say in a nutshell, the biggest question I had after receiving the diagnosis, so I'll talk about stigma, but the biggest question I had was, who's going to want me now? Okay. Who is going to want me now? I, that was the biggest question or in other words, shame, you know, and in this case I'm defining, you know, shame as a threat of being unlovable, you know, the extremely painful belief, you know, or the experiences of thinking that, that I'm unlovable, unworthy of connection. I'm unworthy of belonging. And I carry that with me because of diagnosis. P.S. That feeling actually started in me as a child, being molested as a kid around at seven, from seven to nine. So I have lived with shame in the, as a backdrop, you know, really for most of my life. And I'm at this point learning to undo that and identify it. But the biggest question is who's going to want me after I was diagnosed? Sexual partners, friends, colleagues, family. It took me five years, four or five years to share with my parents I was living with HIV. It took me a while to share with just, you know, general community. So how it changed my life. Now I'm grappling with the question, who's going to want me now? Am I lovable? To that point about being lovable, not to cut you off. Yes. But was that a reflection of you asking yourself, of you not loving yourself, of you not finding yourself desirable? Was that more? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it started there. Absolutely. You know, I hadn't received rejection around HIV yet after I was diagnosed. It was all internal, internal stigma, internal feeling that I'm shameful, I'm stained, um, that I'm not lovable. So, and then the irony is, as I begin to put myself out there and share with others, I received embrace, I received love. But I'll tell you, there's a difference between receiving love and believing that one is lovable. And I had, I'll tell you, I've received so much love throughout my life, junior high, high school, a loving family. Like many folks say, hi, junior high was the worst time of their life or high school. I'd go back to junior high. I would absolutely do it. Now I was struggling with my own internal demons around being molested. But as far as the community, hey, I was the first African-American president of high school. And in college, uh, I did a lot of firsts, a lot of great things. I traveled the world every single year in high school through programs, religious programs and civic programs. I had a great time in high school. Uh, while I don't want to go back in time for any reason, <laughs> junior high and high school, I'd do it again. Loved it. My point is I've been around a lot of love in my life. And the irony is because starting with molestation, I never believed I was lovable. And so therefore I couldn't really fully receive and embrace that which was coming to me. I am an extrovert. I am a gifted speaker. I'm a great personality. But I'm also very good looking. Your audience can't see how <laughs> how gorgeous they can't see, but believe you me, Google it, okay? Uh, <laughs> you no, know, I've had the opportunity to do modeling and stuff like that, but uh, you know, I'm being kind of funny at, at that point. But I do think I am handsome. None of that matter because in my beginnings, I had believed that I was unlovable, so I couldn't receive it. So I thought that to be loved, I had to perform for you, be funny be a great speaker, be a great personality, all that, because I thought that I was an irreparable damaged freak on the inside. And if you got close enough to me, you would see that. So those lies of shame, believing I'm unlovable, I don't belong, 
really made it hard for me to connect to individuals and receive love and then also to give love completely as fully because I couldn't be vulnerable. So the HIV diagnosis, so I had an opportunity through my life to work through that sense of self-worth, self-esteem up until my diagnosis in my 30s, 2011 is when I was diagnosed. But a lot of those feelings came back. I did take some tools from the sexual abuse, the tools I used through therapy, through friends to help me cope with the HIV diagnosis, which I'll say was not as devastating as the molestation for me. But how I addressed it and worked through, you know, since of being unlovable through the HIV diagnosis, I'll tell you this, some of the same things I used for, you know, the molestation, faith, 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 as, and as nebulous as it sounds, there are some songs that, you know, one song, he loves me. Yes, he loves me. Me and Christ, God, I would listen to over and over again because I felt such a deep sense of being unlovable. But those songs helped me feel lovable. I began to share bit by bit with individuals I could trust and I felt supported me. And I I happened to be working in the field of HIV when I was diagnosed. And so I was able to see individuals who were living their best life, successful, doing great things, gay black men who were also living with HIV. That gave me, you know, the confidence that, hey, I could have a great life even with the diagnosis. How did it change me? So there's this, it caused me to dive, delve more deeply into the sense of self-worth, to grow that with inside of myself. Now it is such a point of strength for me. I have traveled the world talking about my HIV diagnosis. I've been able to be a black face to talk to other black boys and men around HIV, around sexual health, you know, getting tested around HIV prevention, around treatment, you know, particularly those in faith communities as well. And so it's, you know, been a platform of my own, which has thrust me into advocacy around HIV. I didn't ever say I wanted to be an advocate or an activist. No, I think it kind of fell into my lap. And I do remember the day, the time when I thought, I was like, huh, I'm gay, I'm black, a person of faith. And I hid for a long time because of eight, because of stigma around being gay, around a religious stigma, you know, how many more might there be others? I knew there were that are like me, that are hiding, that are not taking care of themselves, you know, sexually because they're too busy being hidden because the fear of rejection from religious communities, black and brown communities. May I be a source of encouragement, of hope, of inspiration to help them live their best lives or live out their truth rather. If even just get tested, you know, take care of their sexual health. So I wanted There's to be so a- much stigma around even just getting tested. I mean, for me, sex education, I thought, you know, I was told, you know, HIV would kill me and that yeah. if I got it, I deserved it. Basically, it would kill me. That was kind of like the it's a death sentence, you know, yeah. death to your life. Once you are diagnosed with HIV, I wasn't taught about prep. I wasn't taught about getting tested regularly. So my first years as a in the closet gay man, you know, fooling around here and there, I'm just filled with so much fear that if you had to swap me, if you had to take my blood, I'm having about a heart attack just in the process because I don't know what's going to come of this because I know that if it doesn't come back my way, it's a death sentence. And it's actually me getting, you know, and finally after few years of me just kind of doing whatever I wanted and finally right. being tested 
I remember I was shaking. They took my blood pressure. My blood pressure was all through the roof. And I'm like, I'm fine, I swear. But I'm, yeah. like, I'm all through the roof. I'm sweating. They're taking, I'm just, I'm having such a hard time. And then they finally, and then I leave. I leave and I'm waiting for my results. This is prior to me moving to Chicago. And when they call and tell me that I'm negative, I just had, you would have thought that my mama died and my da- like everybody died. And I'm just having this moment of like, God, thank you. I'm going to just be honest from now on. And that's what I actually came out. People don't know that. That's actually when I came out. I was like, okay, everybody in my personal life, we just going, my thing was I would have hated to them for them to find out that way because of the stigma. And right. because there's not a lot of education or people don't seek out the information. I'm not going to say that there's not information out there because there's right. information out there to educate, but not everyone is educated on that. And when right. they find out that you are gay or queer, they go, oh, you're being careful, right? You're not going to get any cooties, are you? And and it's things like that that I think don't encourage people to educate themselves, to empower themselves, but then also to not view other people as mistakes, as unlovable, as, you know, cretins or something, you know, to not human, to inhu- to dehumanize people. And my question then for you is how you've done this activism, you've traveled around the world, what are the misconceptions that you've heard surrounding HIV and how have you been able to combat them in your work? Wow. Because there's so many. I there's named, so many. <laughs> I named yeah. you there. Like HIV is God's punishment to the gay man. Like that's one right there. Um, one is that only gay men, gay black men specifically have HIV. Many women get contracted with HIV because they have their men who are on the down low uh, and are not taking care of themselves. Those are just a few misconceptions. But how in your work have you been able to combat those and to help people take the scales off of their eyes? Right. Well, the misconception of what a person looks like who is living with HIV, maybe sickly, they're not doing well in life. I, as well as others, had gotten the opportunity to say, I'm living with HIV, and I travel the world. Uh, I have a great job. I'm living a fulfilled life. No, nothing's perfect. It's not for any, it isn't perfect for anyone. But I am pursuing my dreams, you know, and so can you. This is not the thing that's stopping me from being who I want to be. In fact, it's actually thrusting me forward as my perspective changes around what it means to live with HIV. Um, but as you said, yes, HIV is not a death sentence. I think in short around this is mis- the dispelling misinformation and disinformation around the science. Hmm. So we look at the science around, you mentioned PrEP, which stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. We know that there is a now a medication that if for people who are HIV negative, they take that it's going to prevent them from contracting HIV almost 100%. Folks just not believing that. And then also not believing that, you know, you equals you, meaning undetectable for so those who are living with HIV, HIV positive, they take their medication, HIV treatment as prescribed, daily as prescribed, you know, most people will become, most, most, not all, but most become undetectable, which means that the virus is so low in one's blood that it cannot be detected, you know, by standardized tests which means that there's so little of the virus in one's blood, it cannot, not highly improbable or or highly unlikely, it cannot be transferred 
to another person. So it's, you know, but then you have a lot of conspiracy theorists from different people groups, oftentimes black and brown communities that, you know, this HIV was created by the white man or the government to destroy black and brown communities uh, that, you know, hey, if I take these medications, it's own, they couldn't, you know, we'll say with, with PrEP, I heard one individual in my travel say, you know, they, the government, the white man, big quotes, you know, couldn't kill me. If they can't kill me with HIV, they'll kill me with taking a medication that will eventually, you know, kill me, meaning PrEP, which is not true whatsoever. Misconceptions around all these like home remedies that can cure HIV. I've heard so many things. No, we, there have people that have been cured from HIV. We do not know how to scale that or to do that in a way that is safe for the general public. public. So for all intents and purposes, we do not have a cure for HIV. And there aren't like natural remedies that cure it. Herbs, you know, and the list goes on, oils. No, we don't have a cure yet. Treatment does work. If you are, you know, diagnosed, yes, get on treatment. You know, the CDC now recommends that anyone who is sexually active, their guidance is that they should consider being on PrEP. And that's just not for gay people. It's anyone who is sexually active, you know, the pre-exposure prophylaxis for those who are HIV negative to prevent, you know, the acquisition of HIV. Some of the other myths. So a lot around science. I want to say this though, that the challenges around talking about HIV in various communities, particularly black and brown communities, barriers, what we call social determinants of health drivers that one must face before they can have uh, what would be for them a very robust conversation on HIV prevention, treatment, and awareness. So we've got to look at homophobia. We've got to look at, you know, HIV stigma. We've got to look at poverty. We've got to look at one's culture. These things have got to be sexism that have got to be addressed before one can have these conversations around HIV. I remember doing a focus group in New York at one time, and we were trying to figure out you know, what are some of the barriers that exist for individuals being participating in HIV clinical trials, HIV prevention clinical trials? And this woman so pointedly said, you know, I was in New York, it was an African-American woman. She says, you know, I'm poor, I'm black. I have X amount of children. You know, I live with, you know, some deep in one of the boroughs in New York. She says, I can't afford to you know, be coming out with the fact that I may be living with HIV. I don't need another strike against me. So it's these things that are surrounding HIV that also have to be addressed. If the epidemic is going to actually end, we have got to end and dismantle homophobia, racism. We've got to address poverty. We have to address these kinds of things in health disparities, inequity, so we can have a more healthy conversation around HIV. I lastly, I'll say it's really interesting some of the prevention mechanisms that I've heard all the way around HIV, all the way from Snickers wrappers <laughs> wrapped around one's penis or Ziploc baggie. I remember someone said, you know, they said to me, and I don't want to belabor this point, and they like, I've never had an STI. And I was like, oh, great, cool, like, good for you. And they kept saying, no, I've never had one. And, you know, great, awesome. And they're like, you want to know how? You want to know why? I was like, oh, okay, tell me. And they said that they, had got a recommendation from one of their girlfriends, a cis woman, 
to use a cap of Lysol. He said she placed it in her vagina before sex so she wouldn't get an STI. Now he places it in his rectum before sex. So it's just ludicrous, painful. Don't do that. That actually exacerbates. I don't understand. You know, he, he, he said it with so much sincerity and conviction. I believed him. Was he telling the truth? I guess facts, I don't know, but it really seemed like it. But P.S., that's wrong. That destroys aligning, you know, your insides there, which leaves you more susceptible to contracting STIs, and it's just flat-out painful. So I don't know what that looked like practically for that person, but his spelling myths around uh, prevention, et cetera, and treatment and the science from HIV. And I have a question that's connected to the stigma. So there's stigma that can be faced outside of the queer community. And when I say queer community, those who are out, those who are out and proud, I would say. But then there's stigma within the queer community. In your work of counseling and and working with individuals who are diagnosed uh, and being an advocate, how have you advised them to move forward trying to live their lives as, as usual? You know, are they welcome in the bathhouse? How do they communicate their diagnosis to a potential partner or to someone they're on a date with? Because then, you know, for me, someone who's HIV negative, it's how do I engage in those situations without harming another human? That's often how I think of it, because I know that I have my own, I've been impacted by stigma and I'm processing through it. And and so have many other people. But how, what is the best way to engage in the community regarding this topic. Engage who? An HIV negative person engaging around would, that people are living with HIV? I would say people living with HIV, but then I, I'd actually flip it. Those who are HIV negative within the queer community out and proud and encountering and experiencing other humans who just so happen to be HIV positive, what is the best way to navigate that knowing that we have that same stigma? I have to say, I liken it to racism. If we're talking about, you know, I say white racism, you know, what do we say to white folks who want to be allies? So you're essentially, you're effectively talking about allyship, HIV negative people being allies to HIV positive people. That's a type of allyship, you know, and I would say, don't let that burden of your understanding rest on people who are living with HIV. You address your own fear your own misinformation and disinformation around HIV and how it's contracted and the facts surrounding it. You address that. You address your own perhaps internalized homophobia or hangups around sex. You address that first and foremost, period. You address that. It's there is, you know, if you want to stay HIV negative, you know, that's you know, one's responsibility to do so. It's not like, okay, you people who are HIV, living with HIV, are you on your meds? Are you doing what you need to do to take care of your health? No, people who are not living with HIV, who are HIV negative, are you doing what you need to do? And fear, stigmatized fear, unhealthy fear it is not a tool. It's only damning and only perpetuates this epidemic. Address your own fear, your own stigma, do the work. If you want to be an ally, if you're living with HIV, do your own work around that. Um, and what does allyship look like? Oh, gosh. What is allyship? For people who are, you know, I'm living with HIV. So uh, I would say, well, being educated and believing the science, if we're talking about HIV, getting educated and believing the science around prevention, around treatment, you know, have the kind of sex that you want to have. 
And at the end of the day, if someone is undetectable, they're not going to transmit. At the end of the day, if one is on PrEP, it is extremely unlikely that they're going to contract HIV if they're taking both medications as prescribed. So, you know, I think allyship is, you know, trusting the science in this case. Um, Would you say it's trusting the science and then not to cut you off, but it, it trusting the science, but then also trusting the individual that you're well, sharing that experience with? Because I feel like that's another level that that's more personal and less science based. Correct. Correct. So, yeah. So I was going to say then, and do you know people who are living with HIV? Have you had conversations, et cetera, people living with HIV? Research tells us that folks are more likely to come out talking about gay in this case um, to people that they know or that know them. They're more likely. Now, we know it doesn't happen across the board, but this information, courage, allyship, I believe, can be strengthened by actually having a relationship around with someone who's living with HIV and obviously being aware that they are living with HIV. Um, so that's really important. I would say not allowing your allyship to be centered around an individual, that you're supporting Paris just because you know Paris. Say that again. That your allyship is not, is not centered around an individual, that your allyship is not centered around even a community where that you are on the outside helping these quote unquote, these people. Now the, and what I mean by that is that your focus is more so on quote unquote helping than it is identifying your own uh, stigma, your own misinformation and disinformation, your own gaps, take care of that. Don't need a savior. Don't need anyone coming on any white horses to save me because I'm living with HIV. Save yourself and then you can help support me. But get your information, address your fear, and then maybe you can be useful to the causes that relate to people you know, living with HIV. But because you can fall out of, you like me one day, don't like me the other day, so you don't like me, so now you're not going to be an ally. Don't have it be centered around my person, just me in a singular fashion. And as well, though, do get to know me. So there's a humility. I think that's what I'm getting at. A humility that must uh, uh, align itself with one being an ally, recognizing what they don't know, being open to learning themselves, not just I'm here to help, quote unquote, you people. Does that make sense? That does. And then to a point regarding, we've talked a lot about your experience, a bit of my experience, the Black queer experience. We have that in common. Yes. And the experience of Black LGBTQ plus individuals is unique because we exist as a minority within a minority. You were mentioning intersectionalities earlier in the conversation. And I was looking at this study by the Williams Institute, uh, verified by the American Medical Association. And there are 11.3 million self-identifying LGBT adults in the United States, 40% who are of color, and then 12%, such a small percentage, uh, that are Black. I'm going to list off some stats. 82% chance of having experienced discriminatory event in the past year, more than likely by a member of the queer community. 56% living below the federal 200% poverty line. Nearly 40% have an annual household income below $24,000 a year, but only 25% making more than 60 k annually. 75% do not have a college education. By geography, 
were estimated to be 56% in the South and then spread evenly between the Northeast or Northeast and Midwest with 10% on the West Coast. The specific number set is from 2019, but the CDC estimated that about 1.2 million people in the U.S. have HIV and 40% of them are Black. I just listed a bunch of figures because in my view, this is more than just data. This is lived experience. These are people's lives. When I listed those off, what goes through your mind as it relates to the Black queer experience in this country? Well, I'll tell you, it is there are many factors that exacerbate HIV. We look at COVID, you know, there are many factors, poverty, the proximity of people living together, which, you know, can there can be a direct correlation with does one have the means to have a 3,000 square foot home to go to a separate room if they contract COVID versus being in a one bedroom you know, apartment with you know six people or five people? Mm-hmm. You know, that dynamic can be really impacted by financial resources. And what goes through my head is there are many, we've got to address racism, homophobia, poverty. These things exacerbate HIV. We call them minority stress. On top of you know being gay, there is a, the, the stigma. And let me just back up here. When I say stigma, the root of that research tells us, and I believe, is fear. Stigma is driven by fear. And it's driven by people groups wanting to preserve themselves, their reputation, their actual existence. And so when there is a threat to their identity, their actual existence, stigma is used as a tool, fear, to destroy whatever they feel is threatening their existence, their health, their livelihood, etc. And so anyhow, backing up, there's all these dynamics that, that create or what we call minority stress, the, you know, again, the racism, homophobia that drive this epidemic that uniquely impacts communities of color. It is not an accident that Black and brown folks are the people group who are living with the highest numbers of HIV prevalence. It's not an accident there. Uh, and it has nothing to do with, you know, research tells us being, you know, being more risky at sex, et cetera. There are a lot of barriers that have been established that have left these communities, our communities, vulnerable to things like COVID, to things like HIV, And then a question I have is looking at that data set and sitting where we sit as accomplished Black men, and it appears that to be a somewhat stable queer Black man, you're on the outs of the majority of queer Black men, according to that data set. And many of us find ourselves predominantly hanging out in white dominant environments. You can find Black dominant environments, but primarily in some areas, it's white dominant. How have you found yourself navigating as a a Black queer man in white dominant spaces, uh, and then also creating your own spaces? I'll tell you this, navigating white spaces here. One thing I had to realize as just a Black man, and this came perhaps later in my life than I would have liked in college, (laughs) in the 90s, I'm not white. Okay. I'm not white, y'all. I'm not white. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And I don't want to be. Okay. So I am not white. So I have grown up, you know, my black family, mom, dad, and my, you know, now two brothers. I had three, one passed away. Steven, I love you. You know, my family, my mom and dad, family, aunt, et cetera, like black culture, us being black, 
I guess you can say we were blackly black. Like, you know, though we integrated with, you know, and engaged with other ethnic groups, totally. But black was always affirmed in my family, okay? And I was placed in communities, particularly I moved from Minneapolis to Seattle, uh, which was just like moving to Mars. Like, oh my God, white <laughs> as far as I could see, you know. You moved up there with the Cullens. Oh. The Empires was out there. They was playing baseball out in the field and you was watching them. I was watching, exactly. And so there was socialization. That's where I'm going with that. Because, you know, I was out in the suburbs now in Seattle. And so at the age of nine, nine going on 10, and it was, and then I you know, went to private high school for, you know, half the time, then a private college. And it was just, you know, white folks, white folks. That church where I went to when my parents were not actively pastoring was predominantly white. And I'll tell you, it was in college. I was like, motherfucker, I am not white. And I had this epiphany, I am not white. Now, it's not like I was ever, quote unquote, trying to ever be white. But it's like, you, if you're around a thing so much, you can begin that you are that thing too. Mm. I'm not that thing. What that meant for me is that there are cultural and historical distinctives that they don't share with me. I am seen in this world differently. I am seen in this world differently because of my skin color. There are different privileges. I have my privileges as well, but we have different privileges. You know, the racism is real. I'm not white. More importantly, you know, I'm Paris. I'm my own individual, but we'll just right. describe you know, ethnicity and color. I'm not. So then it kind of really leaned me into delving into what it meant to be black for me. Now, I had learned, you know, earlier in my life when I had felt questioned, damn, am I black enough for different, you know, black groups? And one of the, my takeaways was, I define what black means to me. So that was in my toolbox. But I just had this, again, epiphany in college. Like, I'm black, but I'm not white. So that's a journey I'm always on, just really delving into my blackness and what that means for me and being clear that I am not white. The second epiphany came during the George Floyd, you know, murder was I, gosh, probably can tend to be more diplomatic in my dealings with people. Hmm. But hey, that George Floyd thing, just I've seen at that point in my life, a lot of things that were similar to that George Floyd situation. We're talking about Rodney King uh, and many other things, you know, centered around race and a black man being beaten, murdered, you know. Rodney King wasn't murdered that day that he was beaten in the street there right. in LA. I said, you know what? Also, I'm not going to center my blackness around whiteness. I am not going to minimize my beliefs around racism. P.S. Not all white people are, are racist. And when I tell you, when I say whiteness, mm, I am talking, I mean a few things. One, I mean structural racism. Okay systemic racism and immediate or one-off experience of racism, you know, at the hands of white people, racial bias, racial bias against me, my culture, and how I show up my presentation and representation. I'm not going to center through means of fear and uncomfortability who I am around those kinds of things. I will stand against being anti-racist to their face. I'm not inclined to give passes or to be like, it's okay. You know, you're learning. 
fuck that. I've had to fucking learn at age 47, you can fucking learn yourself as well, how to be anti-racist yourself. Because I'll just say this here very informally. I believe in DE&I. I absolutely do. I think we can all learn from that. I don't know if I want to say this here, on, but with the recorder off, I'm like, this DE&I stuff is for white folks. Okay, because I've had the D, black folks have had the DE&I since the beginnings of time. We had the DE&I to keep our jobs, okay, to be liked by, you know, a predominant culture. If we're talking about white culture, you know, how to talk appropriately, you know, how to code switch, you know, all these kinds of things. So that's how I feel informally. Formally, yes, I do believe in DNI. We can all learn how to work and coexist better together, but not to center my blackness and my, how I show up around their whiteness or white fragility, they being uncomfortable, whether it be around structural racism or not. I'm going to show up. I'm going to show up. I'm going to give that to myself. I'm not going to be their scapegoat. I'm not going to do their work for them around their naivete, around, you know, me being black, the history of black folks in America. It is not all about oppression, but there is a part that is our own Holocaust. You know, I'm, you know. Yeah. And it's a fun question as we're we're starting to wind down as that relates to dating and not centering your blackness around whiteness. How has that impacted you in the dating market? Would you say that? You're not into white men, or do you think that's something that's appropriate to say? That's a fun question. Uh, not hey, that a question, question wasn't on your what you sent me before this conversation. It was not. <laughs> this is a, a branch from a conversation I was having with a friend, and we were. She was uh, talking to me about a group of individuals, and she was like, "Yeah, they're like openly like they're not into black people," and she was like, "She found that to be problematic," and told them as much. And so, from my perspective, I go, "What do you think?" No, I do not agree with eliminating a entire group, an entire group of people uh, around a prejudice or bias. No, I just feel like that's leaning into to racism. You know, I have not. Period. So I will say that love is love, as cliche as that sounds. And the overriding factor for me is I I believe in love. I have dated white men. I've dated black men. You know, Puerto Rican black men. I've you know, <laughs> you know across the spectrum. Uh, I have. And, and I will. Now, I have preferences. Like, I would prefer, you know, to settle down, if you will, in a long-term fashion, um, create a relationship with a person of color, you know, which includes Asian as well. Okay, so, you know, if I meet someone who's white and we just click, love's there, you know, I have some decisions to make. One, I'll tell you, this is where I lean in, Brian. My natural inclination is like to lean into it. Uh, maybe it's the Libra me. I don't know, but to lean into it. I'm like, Wait, oh, you're a Libra? I'm a Libra. I'm a Libra. Of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. I lean into it. But I do have some questions because attraction and co- compatibility are different. Wow. So, That's mature. I'm, That's a yeah, mature I'm, answer. I'm attracted to you. Oh, I want to fuck. I want to have sex. I want all these things and all the, you know, we say sparks. P.S. Fuck sparks. Okay. They're there. They are not, you know, we get too much credence, but it's like, okay, attraction, but are we compatible around core values? values. Thank you. That's kind of my, that's where I'm existing these days of like, yeah, you cute, but yo, we're not compatible with those core values. <laughs> yeah, we're not compatible with those core values. And and that's most important, you know, if there's some compatibility. Do you seek for your partners to be, and this is a personal question, but 
as someone, a person of faith myself, do you seek for them to also be a person of faith? Is that a requirement? Or how do you navigate that? Because in the queer community, there is an, an animus towards faith and church. Because not taking your advice from earlier where it's like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The whole thing has been thrown out and set on fire. So to be a <laughs> queer person of faith, it's very like when you're black, you kind of get a pass because they're like, oh, slavery, it helped get you guys through in the civil rights movement. But otherwise, how do you what do you look for there? Oh, that's a great question. That's been the evolution for me as my own faith has been the evolution for me. The short story is this. I have always said, and I still believe this is true about me, have a faith. When I'm defining this very broadly is a belief in a higher power, a power greater than oneself. It would be hard for me to, to, to now, hey, until I fall in love with one, right? To, to have a relationship with an atheist. You know what the scriptures say? The sanctified, <laughs> wife, the sanctified <laughs> wife sanctifies the husband. We could switch right. the genders, but I'm right, saying. right. I, you know, I just, I appreciate if someone, you know, atheist, agnostic, I really appreciate. And I have something to learn from their perspectives. I do. I'm open to that. But as far as connecting or for using biblical terms to be yoked, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, that faith component is really important for me. And I would say to be more explicit, whether it be non-Christian, hmm. except for Satanism. Yes. <laughs> That's a black, we just have an aversion to that completely. Yeah, just except for Satanism. <laughs> so I guess I have to, I have to you know, go down for that one. But, you know, Buddhism, you know, Muslim. Faith is important to me. Christian faith, I'm more aligned with. But hey, but it's not like even there, I have my questions and, you know, and queries and, you know, so, but faith is important to me. I have relied upon a power greater than me. A power greater than myself has gotten me thus far. I believe it's not all about my hard work and determination. God has come through. Jesus has come through specifically so many different times, so many different miracles in my life. I don't think it was my positive affirmations and willpower solely. Okay. So anyway, that's probably a whole other podcast, but uh, yes, I'm open to dating outside of black. And yes, I'm open to dating people who are not Christian and faith is very important to me. Yeah. And then I guess I have two more questions. When it comes to looking back on your life, you said you're 47 what are things that you realize now that you would tell 20-year-old Paris, 16-year-old Paris? Oh, my God. Give me uh, two. Be gay already. Be gay already, uh, one. And then number two, all that you wish you were, you look at other men, I wish I was that. All that you aspire to be, you already are. You already are beautiful. You already are so lovable. You already do have the power to pursue your dreams. You already have a great calling on your life to do great things, to impact this world in healthy ways. You already have it. And it does not have to be given to you by other people. Um, It just merely needs to be realized by you yourself. You are enough. You don't need to earn it. It's been given to you. You just need to realize it. And uh, I would, I would say, I would say that lovable. Yeah. 
that you are lovable. Mm-hmm. One thing I've learned too is that pain is inevitable in this life, but suffering is optional. The pain, sexual abuse, the pain being diagnosed with HIV, the pain of coming out. But it has been up to me to determine if I will and how much I will suffer, you know, through these things. And I've learned through addressing, confronting shame, through realizing that I am lovable, uh, through forgiving myself, through embracing my humanity, which for me means, hey, I'm not my ideal self and I'm not. I'm not in my totality, my dark side. I'm someplace in between. That puts my ego in check, uh, which allows for mess ups in life, which allows for making mistakes, which allows for not being fucking perfect, uh, which allows for me to be human, to embrace my own humanity and others' humanity. Those realizations have helped me alleviate suffering that has come through painful choices and through events in my life, embrace my humanity, forgiving myself, knowing and believing that I'm lovable and I am uh, worth it and worthy. Thank you for listening to this episode of BC's Corner. If you love this conversation, feel free to like, to follow, to subscribe, and also to share. And if you really liked us, feel free to go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you so much for being a part of this community and we'll see you soon. Whoa, oh, oh.